0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In the last century, in the 20th century, there was a narrative about um, the history of Trinitarian theology uh, that became quite uh, dominant or widespread. Uh, And in that narrative, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, is the main villain in the long history of Christian thought about the Trinity. In many versions of this standard narrative, he competes with St. Augustine for this dubious honor. But even if he's only the second worst Trinitarian theologian of all time, St. Thomas is the clear paradigm, according to this narrative, of Western scholastic error on the Trinity. He embodies, so the story goes, all the bad features of the Western scholastic attempt to systematize Augustine's already misguided Trinitarian theology on this reading. Theologians who tell this story thereby ignore, to be sure, the remarkable richness of medieval Trinitarian thought from, say, Anselm to Occam, for example. More precisely, they tell their story in more or less complete ignorance of this complex and sophisticated tradition of reflection in which Thomas is one voice among others. Situating Aquinas in this tradition of reflection greatly helps us understand his accomplishment, but that is a story for another time. St. Thomas is at present by far the most influential theologian of the medieval scholastic tradition, and so here I will focus on him and on the way he can help us toward a genuine renewal of Trinitarian theology. Before the renewal, though, we need to think a bit about the errors attributed to Thomas by the dominant narrative. Aquinas' deepest and most destructive mistake on this telling is to have completed the process, begun with Augustine, of turning the doctrine of the Trinity from the heart of the mystery of salvation, as it was in the patristic era, into an abstruse and isolated technical puzzle. Of no relevance to any other theological topic, let alone to the daily lives of Christians. It was Thomas, in Karl Rahner's famous phrase, who made of Christians mere monotheists rather than those whose belief in the triune God shapes all of their worship, life, and thought. Though Rahner himself was characteristically too circumspect to lay this charge directly at Aquinas's door. Few of his disciples have been so cautious. Thomas consigns the trinity to irrelevance, so the story goes, because he makes other mistakes of a somewhat more technical sort. The eclipse of the trinity is compounded of three theological errors in particular according to this narrative, and the three are rather closely related. Uh, I've identified them in the outline and then we'll speak about how each of them might be assessed. The first fundamental problem with Thomas's Trinitarian theology according to this reading is that he fatally starts with the one God rather than as even Peter Lombard among the medievals had known to do with the Trinity of Persons. Now what it means to start here is a little puzzling, a little difficult to pin down. Um, but it seems to be, this objection seems to be simply that when you open the Summa Theologia, you first get to the divine essence in questions 3 through 26, and only then do you get the divine persons in questions 27 to 43 of the first part. So he starts in the most sort of obvious elementary sense, namely that when you read the book, you get to one thing first and then to the other thing. And that seems to be, according to this framework of thinking, a fundamental problem for reasons I'll say a bit more about. Secondly, this starting point of St. Thomas, according to the standard reading, binds him to an essentialism about the Trinity. Essentialism here is a kind of technical term. Uh, And this is viewed, in this understanding, as the sort of basic or central theological error of the Augustinian Trinitarian tradition. That is, having started with the undifferentiated divine essence, Aquinas can never really get to the persons. He can never really get to personal distinction in God. Father, Son, and Spirit in their fundamental distinction from one another, and especially in the vivid personal interaction with one another that we behold in the economy of salvation. The three threatened to disappear in Thomas's Trinitarian theology, according to this argument, swallowed up by the divine essence. At best, they are reduced to mere relations within the one divine essence, thereby losing their character, according to this objection, as genuine persons. The Orthodox theologian, Vladimir Losky is a famous uh, exponent or articulator of this uh, objection to Thomas's Trinitarian theology in his Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church and other writings. On this view, according to Aquinas, according to this reading of Aquinas, we can distinguish the divine persons only by an abstruse conceptual geometry of origination and relation, a kind of intellectual jujitsu, which leaves only an isolated divine triad of three subsistent relations, to use a technical phrase of Thomas's, three subsistent relations in which we cannot possibly have any religious or existential interest. Third, among the fundamental problems with Thomas's Trinitarian theology is that in starting in the wrong place and in being an essentialist, Thomas follows the Western, as it's sometimes called, or Latin or Augustinian. These are all different labels for the same thing in this view. Thomas follows the Western or Latin or Augustinian Trinitarian tradition. When he should have followed or been instructed, by the Eastern or Greek or Cappadocian tradition. If he had done so, he would have avoided his other errors. He would have known to start with the Trinity of Persons rather than with the one God or an abstract divine essence. And thereby, he would have found his way to a genuine Trinitarian personalism rather than being bound to his Augustinian essentialism. Over the last 25 years or so, historians of ancient and medieval Christian thought have thoroughly discredited this modern narrative about the content and development of Trinitarian theology throughout the Middle Ages. St. Thomas has certainly received his share of attention in this ongoing reconsideration of the Christian Trinitarian tradition. Father Gilles Emery of Fribourg and others have constructed a detailed and precise historical account of St. Thomas's teaching on the Trinity against its patristic and earlier medieval background. In the process, they have shown that neither the basic thrust of the standard 20th century narrative, nor any of its more technical elements, has merit as a reading of St. Thomas. Quote, only a profound misunderstanding, Father Emery writes, could have led Karl Rahner to associate the name of St. Thomas with the views that he criticizes. Only deep misunderstanding, in other words, could have led not only Rahner, but generations of theologians in the second half of the 20th century, Catholic and Protestant alike, to dismiss Aquinas on the Trinity as a misguided Latin essentialist who doesn't know where to start. The results of this historical labor have become fairly familiar, at least among theologians, and I can summarize them in response to each of the three errors attributed to Thomas by the modern narrative. First of all, the suggestion that it greatly matters where a Trinitarian theology starts, especially in the way this is, first of all, introduced as an objection against Aquinas, namely what comes first in the book, The suggestion that it matters where a Trinitarian theology starts is odd in principle. Writing Trinitarian theology, after all, is not like writing a novel. It is a quest for the intellectus fidei, for a rational understanding of the faith. It is not an effort to tell a good story to get from the beginning to the end in the most imaginative way possible. In fact, Trinitarian theology really has no single... Or normative beginning and end. The intellectus fidei, the understanding of the faith at which it aims, is attained to the extent that the primary teachings of the faith about the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are developed in a way that is coherent, consistent, and has explanatory power. Now this is no easy task when it comes to understanding the Church's faith in the Trinity but it is surely one that can be started in any number of ways. In any case, it makes little sense to charge Aquinas with starting in the wrong place since she actually starts in both places. In book one of his Scriptum on the Sentences, his first major writing, Aquinas follows Peter Lombard's order of presentation offering a detailed account of the Trinity at the outset for many distinctions, uh, questions at the outset, long before he considers the divine nature and its attributes at the end of book one. In the Summa Theologiae, he famously reverses the order and takes the recently much maligned step of treating the divine essence and its attributes first, and then moving on to the distinction of persons. But the actual content of the Trinitarian theology of the Scriptum and of the Summa Theologiae Certain interesting technical points aside, is largely the same. The two works advocate largely the same position on the whole range of contested questions that medieval scholastic theologians debated on the Trinity. Surely it would be odd to say that essentially the same Trinitarian theology, or largely the same Trinitarian theology, the same intellectives of the Church's faith in the Trinity, succeeds in the scriptum and is incoherent in the Summa simply because they are presented in two different places or in two different orders. On the second point, again, the one that is the heart of the theological or technical, quasi-technical objections to Aquinas on the Trinity over the last several generations, that he's an essentialist. In fact, Aquinas can't be an essentialist in Trinitarian theology. Because he does not think the trinity of persons in God can be derived either from the divine essence in our thought and knowledge, or produced by the divine essence in reality. So neither epistemologically in our thinking and knowledge, nor ontologically in the actual order of things, are the divine persons derived from the divine essence for Aquinas. He is neither an epistemic nor an ontological essentialist about the trinity. The divine essence can be known by natural reason. The trinity of persons only by faith for St. Thomas. More precisely, nothing about the divine essence, whether it is known by us by faith or by reason, allows us to infer that there are distinct persons in God. There are personal productions and so personal distinctions in God. That this is the case, that there are personal productions and personal distinctions in God, is for St. Thomas a primitive datum of faith, an epistemological prime number, which cannot be derived from any other item of knowledge about the divine essence including, for St. Thomas, the presence of intellect and will as necessary in the supreme divine essence. Nor, in fact, can the divine essence itself produce a divine person. The distinction between essence and person, in other words, is quite fundamental to medieval Trinitarian theology and not one that is overlooked or forgotten uh, because of a dazzled preoccupation with the divine essence. In 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council had taught as a basic matter of Christian faith, against the background of some some 12th century debates that we won't get into for the moment, the Fourth Lateran Council taught that the divine essence or nature neither generates nor is generated, neither produces nor is produced. It is the Father, the person, who generates. It is the Son, the person, who is generated. The Father and the Son actively produce, or in medieval parlance, spirate, breathe. The Holy Spirit, the person. Well, the Holy Spirit proceeds from, or is spirated, breathed by, the Father and the Son because of these personal acts of generation and procession or spiration, but only in virtue of these personal acts, one by the Father, the other by the Father and the Son, because of these acts, the one divine essence is in fact common to, numerically, one amongst Father, Son, and Spirit. But the essence itself is neither the agent nor the patient of personal action in God. Precisely the confusion, as it was styled, that worried people like Lossky and Karl Barth and others is in fact heavily argued against, not only in Aquinas, but in virtually all medieval scholastic Trinitarian theology, against the background of this decision at the Fourth Lateran Council. For scholastic theology after 1215, after Lateran IV, the question was never whether essentialism is wrong, but what sort of argument most effectively shows that it's wrong. On this, there was a very interesting variety of views, though I'll leave that aside for the present. As for the third worry Greek and Latin approaches to the Trinity, Aquinas knew and used the Greek fathers more extensively than any Latin theologian of his time, and probably more than any Western theologian between late antiquity and the 17th century. On the Trinity, he draws especially from John of Damascus, whose on the Orthodox faith, De Fide Orthodoxa, had been translated into Latin in the mid 13th century. Conversely, St. Thomas was a respectful, but sometimes clearly critical interpreter of Augustine on the Trinity. He is not a slavish follower of Augustine, although he views Augustine's De Trinitate, he doesn't say this in so many words, but it's fairly clear from what he does, as the most important post-biblical source on the Trinity that needs to be engaged. In fact, the Scholastics more generally, in their extensive debates about what to make of Augustine and the rest of the patristic inheritance that was known to them, mooted an enormous variety of views on virtually every Trinitarian question, embracing all the alternatives that were on the table in the Patristic Age, both, both East and West, and many others besides that they themselves perceived. This, among other things, makes the very idea that there are discrete and opposed Greek and Latin Trinitarian traditions difficult to sustain. So that's part one, some historical background. Now, despite widespread agreement among Thomas scholars and medievalists about these basic points of Thomas's Trinitarian teaching, versions of the earlier narrative and Thomas's place in it remain widespread in Catholic dogmatic or systematic theology. Sometimes contemporary Catholic theologians talking about the Trinity seem simply unaware That the historical narrative taken for granted by Rahner and other 20th century theologians has been dismantled. Others are aware of it and accept it, yet proceed as though there were no theological lessons to be learned from a renewed appreciation of what Aquinas actually taught. Thomas's Trinitarian teaching, they assume, can be left to history and has no bearing on the way we think about the Trinity today, at least not in a way that should lead us to change our minds about central Trinitarian claims. So a renewal of Trinitarian theology inspired by St. Thomas will have to do more than set the historical record straight for those who are willing to listen. It will have to join the fray of contemporary Trinitarian theology and show that a broadly Thomistic way of thinking about the Trinity copes with the issues which dominate contemporary Trinitarian theology more sensibly and more effectively than current Trinitarian theology itself is able to do. Thomistic theology needs to go on the offensive, as it were, and not simply defend St. Thomas's Trinitarian teaching against misrepresentation, important as that is. To borrow a phrase from Father Thomas Joseph White, Thomistic theology needs to offer medieval answers to modern questions, to the modern preoccupations in Trinitarian theology, which are certainly rather different than those of the 13th or 14th century. Thomistic theology needs to offer medieval answers to modern questions and show that these are better answers than contemporary theology usually succeeds in giving. Now, one of the basic concerns of contemporary Trinitarian theology, going back now several generations into the early 20th century, is that the Trinity be relevant in all areas of Christian faith and theology and not be relegated to what Rahner calls splendid isolation, by which he means actually miserable isolation. In particular, post-conciliar Catholic theology often joins Protestant theology, especially under the influence of Karl Barth, in seeking the closest possible bond between the Trinity and the cross. What's the relationship between the Trinity and the cross? And in a great deal of Trinitarian theology over the last 75 years, at least, that relationship must be very intimate. Now, with this, St. Thomas clearly agrees, at least in principle. This should not be a surprise. Not being a Latin essentialist who starts in the wrong place, he can reasonably be expected to repudiate the underlying error to which such, such misguided souls are supposedly prone, for example, making the Trinity irrelevant to our understanding of the cross. So in a well-known passage, an objector, a medieval ronner in the back row, like Father John at uh, Santa Sabina or Viterbo, uh, an objector insists that the knowledge of the Trinity cannot be superfluous, it cannot be unnecessary right, St. Thomas replies. It cannot. In fact, he says, knowledge cognizio of the trinity is necessary for two purposes. We need it, quoting St. Thomas, this is in the, the outline, we need it in order to think rightly about the creation of things. So our understanding of creation depends upon an appreciation of the trinity. We need the trinity in order to think, the knowledge of the trinity, in order to think rightly about the creation of things, Because that creation takes place in God's eternal Word, or Son, and through His personal love, that is, the action of the Holy Spirit. Even more, he says, he thinks this is so obvious that he hardly, he just touches on it in a sentence because it's so clear. We need to know of the Trinity to think rightly about the salvation of the human race, which is accomplished by the Incarnate Son. And the gift of the holy spirit so we cannot begin to understand the salvation of the human race as it is proclaimed in the gospel without an understanding of the divine trinity we need to know the trinity in other words to use some other language of saint thomas we need to know the trinity in order rightly to understand the coming forth of creatures from god or creation and the return of creatures, especially of rational creatures, to God, or salvation, redemption. And that, of course, is the entire subject matter of the Summa Theologiae. The exodus of creatures from the triune God and the raditus of creatures to the triune. Or, to be a little more precise, it's the subject matter of everything after Aquinas has introduced the Trinity, namely, question 44 on creation to the end. In principle, therefore, there is no topic in St. Thomas's view in the whole of Sacra Doctrina, Christian theology, from which the Trinity may be isolated, or which may be isolated from it. Thomas also affirms an intimate link of the Trinity and the cross. Quoting him, the Christian faith consists primarily in the confession of the Holy Trinity. And he continues. And faith glories especially in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is from Saint Thomas's short work *De rationibus fidei* on the reasons for the faith. The Christian faith consists primarily in the confession of the Holy Trinity and glories especially in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Confessing the Trinity, Christians glory above all in the cross, glorifying the cross. We confess the Trinity. Confessing the Trinity and glorying in the cross are, it seems, two sides of a coin. One cannot do either for St. Thomas, at least not in the sense that Christian faith does them without doing the other. Properly understood, Trinity and cross exhibit a profoundly intimate connection. The question, naturally, is what makes for a proper understanding of each of Trinity and cross and thereby of how they are rightly connected. Over a century ago now, 125 years ago, the English Congregationalist theologian P.T. Forsyth proposed a distinctive and novel way of locating the basic link between Trinity and cross. Quoting Forsyth, there was a Calvary Above, there was a cross, a crucifixion, above, which was the mother of it all. There was a Calvary above, which was the mother of it all. The cross which Jesus bore for us in time can only be truly effective for our salvation if it was already present and real somehow at the heart of God from all eternity. When we look at the crucifix, we see not only what God has done for our salvation, but what happens in God from all eternity, from before the foundation of the world. In fact, Forsyth and others suggest that the entire saving kenosis of the Son of God that is clearly central to the New Testament, Philippians 2, he emptied himself and took the form of a servant, the entire saving kenosis of the Son of God, the self emptying of Of the Son must in some way pre exist its enactment or manifestation in time. On this view, the obedience the only Son of God exhibits in time, his suffering, his abandonment, his descent into hell for us none of these can simply be actions the Triune God has freely decided to undertake in time for our salvation. Rather, on this view of things, there must be an obedience, a suffering, an abandonment, indeed a crucifixion and death within the interior life of the Trinity in the very processions and relations that eternally constitute and distinguish the three divine persons. If this is not the case, these theologians argue the Triune God himself would not be truly involved In the self-emptying in which our salvation consists and on which it depends. Let alone would the triune God be committed to it with his whole being. The cross cannot simply be what God does for our salvation. It must be who God is. Christ's kenosis, these theologians worry, would be reduced to mere appearance. If this were not the case, if the cross were not who God is, as well as what God does, the kenosis would be reduced to mere appearance behind which lay an unknown and apparently disinterested God, and in any case not the saving God of the gospel and of Christian faith. Over the last century or so, the intuition that our whole salvation depends on a Calvary above, a Calvary at the very heart of God's Trinitarian life, has laid deep hold on Catholic, Protestant, and Eastern Orthodox theology alike, regardless of whether theologians knew anything of Forsyth, whom I've mentioned, or used his language. This intuition is clearly and influentially evident, for example, in the Catholic theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, the Protestant theologian Karl Barth, and the Orthodox theologian Sergei Bulgakov. Whose writings, long available only in Russian and then in French, are now widely available in English and uh, have generated a lot of interest. In fact, Bulgakov is a source for both uh, for Bart, uh, not for Bart, for Balthazar, and Bart and Balthazar, Both, uh, sorry, Bulgakov is a source for Balthazar, Bulgakov and Bart are sources for Balthazar. The intuition at work in this widespread movement, what we can call a Calvary Above movement in recent theology, is clear enough, but developed in a variety of ways. The obedient suffering, abandonment, and descent of Jesus cannot belong to God simply because God has decided to become incarnate in the person of the Son. They must belong to God as God. and not simply belong to God as human, as man. That is, they must belong to God as God and not simply to God in virtue of the Son's taking on or assumption of our flesh. They must be constitutive of his being as God and not only of his contingent or free temporal action. For this modern view, The eternal Son of God does not obey and suffer on Calvary because he has freely become incarnate. Rather, the eternal Son becomes incarnate in order to manifest and make present in the world the obedient suffering and abandonment he has in some way already undergone from all eternity. Now, the obedience and suffering of God the Son Son become flesh, patristic and medieval theology, certainly including Aquinas, consistently held. So Cyril of Alexandria very influentially insists that the father's only begotten suffered and died katasarkon, with respect to or in the flesh. And St. Thomas completely agrees with this. So he has a article in the tertiary parts of the Summa Theology on how we should understand the statement that God died. Does that statement mean that only a human being died? No, that would be Nestorianism. It is God himself in the person of the Son who dies, but he dies on account of having assumed our flesh. So the obedience and suffering and even death of God the Son are not in question in patristic and medieval theology. What's in question is how do we understand this? What do we attribute it to? How do we think that it comes about? And for both patristic and medieval theology, again, Aquinas is very clear about this. It comes about because God has freely decided to become flesh. Now for the more contemporary view, that's at least widespread, Since God is the Trinity and makes himself known to us as the Trinity in his temporal action, in his action in time of becoming incarnate and pouring out his spirit, since he makes himself known as three distinct and interacting persons, there must be, if this revelation of the Trinity is to be saving for us, a kenosis which belongs, in fact, not only to the Son, but to each of the three persons as such from all eternity. Kenosis must be constitutive of each of the three, Father, Son, and Spirit, precisely as divine persons. It cannot belong simply to one of the three and indeed belong because of a free act that one of them has decided to undertake, namely becoming incarnate. Only in this way, so the argument goes, can we take in sufficient earnest God's radical saving identification in Christ with his humiliated and suffering, his derelict and damned creatures. God's likeness to us in all things saves sin. At least to me, it seems that the sort of basic religious intuition here uh, in the Calvary Above movement, as I've labeled it, um, is to embrace as fully as possible God's solidarity with us. God's solidarity with the lost. And if that doesn't in some way go all the way down in God, then it is not truly God's own solidarity with us. That's the basic intuition. Now, I think it's not difficult to appreciate that intuition or the motive um, of wanting to affirm as strongly as possible God's likeness to us in all things save sin. That's, again, in Philippians 2 on the kenosis of the Lord. But the idea does lead to some, I think, significant difficulties. So I'm going to focus here for a few minutes on Balthazar. Balthazar locates the kenosis above, which he's quite emphatic about. He locates the kenosis above in the very generation of the son by the father. As we say in the creed, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light. So in that eternal begetting, in Balthazar's understanding, there is already a kenosis, a claim St. Thomas, for reasons I'll touch on in a moment, would find puzzling. The son's kenosis, in Balthazar's way of thinking about it, is a consent to his own eternal generation, whereby he allows himself to be God from God, a person who possesses the divine nature as receiver and not as giver. In his own words, the Son is already a co-worker, Balthazar says, in the generation, in that he allows himself to be generated. And holds himself ready to be generated. Consequently, this is the crucial connection between Trinity and cross. Consequently, we can already see within the Trinity, this is still Balthazar talking, we can already see within the Trinity the source from which will issue the obedience of the incarnate Son to the Father. So even if there isn't Human obedience exactly in the Trinity, there's already a kenosis that is the ground or basis for this obedience, as Balthazar understands. It. And there's a corresponding kenosis of the Father, according to Balthazar, which consists in his stripping or divesting himself of the divine nature of all that he is and has in order to hand it over to another, that is, to the Son, to make it another's own. Quoting Balthazar again, With Bulgakov, one can designate the self-utterance of the father in the generation of the son as a first all-embracing inner divine kenosis because, still Balthazar, in this generation, the father divests himself without remainder of his divinity, or in scholastic language, of the divine essence. The Father divests Himself without remainder of His divinity in order to give it over to the Son as His own. This twofold inner trinitarian kenosis, whereby the Son consents to His generation in being God from God and not God from whom another is, and the Father's kenosis in handing over the divine essence to the Son. This twofold fold trinitarian kenosis grounds in Balthazar's characteristic turn of phrase, the temporal kenosis of Bethlehem, Calvary, and Holy Saturday. Now, some questions about this from basically St. Thomas's point of view. First of all, it's not clear that either of these acts that Balthazar finds uh, within the Trinity within God, that either of these acts, either sort of kenosis is really conceivable, that we can really understand what we mean when we attribute this to God. So first of all, how can the son assent to his own generation? Not after the fact, which presumably poses no problem. I've been generated, I accept that, okay? I've been born, you know, I was conceived by my father and mother, I accept that. But in Balthazar's view, that's not enough. There must be an act that takes place in order for his generation to occur. He must consent to it in order for it to occur in the first place. But the son, according to the creed, has his total being, this is my gloss on the creed, has his total being, his being as God and his being as son, just to the extent that he is the term or Result, if you like, of the father's act of generation. St. Thomas, in fact, insists on this point rather emphatically. This act of generation must take place in order for the son to assent to it. The act by which he has his own being cannot take place because he assents. That's to get the matter deeply backwards. Moreover, how can the son's ascent to his generation be a canotic act, an act of self-emptying? As Balthazar sees it, kenosis happens primordially or originally when a person, specifically a divine person, divests himself, divests himself of or gives up what he already possesses, or at least has the right to possess. But the eternal Son cannot be thought of as possessing anything, let alone of then giving it up prior to his generation, which is to say prior to his existence. The Son exists on account of the Father's act of generating him and on account of that act alone. He does not exist on account of any act he undertakes. Nothing medieval theology consistently held Nothing can be the cause of its own existence. If the son exists because the father generates him, nothing he does can be the cause of his own existence. Still less can the son exist by the act of renouncing a right to be the divine person who generates rather than the divine person who is generated. The son cannot, in other words, have his existence, as Balthazar remarkably supposes, in his own act of renouncing a right to be the father. It will not help, I think, to point out, as certainly Balthazar and others do, that all this takes place in God's eternity, where temporal categories do not apply, and the son's consent occurs in eternal simultaneity with the father's generation of him. This is... When objections are raised to this sort of uh, argument in or and Bart, the first response is normally, well, but this all happens at the same time. It's all simultaneous, so there's no no issue here. But I think there is actually still an issue, um, namely that you have to be in order to act. Being is prior to acting, essay to operari, as St. Thomas and other medieval scholastics put it. To use a standard patristic and medieval example, the sun's existence as a star, the sun's stellar existence, is prior in the order of nature to the light that shines from the sun, since the being of the light depends on the being of the sun and not the other way around. But the sun and its light are temporally coincident. The one is never present without the other. In this way, being is prior to acting in the order of nature, even when it is not prior in the order of time. The son's eternal act of consent to his generation, of being happy that he exists as the eternal son of God, the son's eternal act of consent to his generation depends in the order of nature on the father's act of generating him and not the other way around. More could be said about this and about numerous further ways in which looking to a Calvary above affects what we say about the Trinity. I've introduced the notion of interdivine kenosis not in order to single Balthazar out for criticism. Many others say similar things, even if not in just the way Balthazar does. But to make what seems to me a more basic point about the axiom that is affirmed by Aquinas and celebrated by a lot of contemporary theology, Namely, that the Trinity ought to shape visibly the whole of faith and theology, that it ought not to be isolated. I think contemporary theology has been strikingly negligent of its own axiom. Rather than having our faith in and understanding of the Trinity shape what we say, for example, about the cross, the pattern has been just the opposite. Intuitions and assumptions about what happens on the cross Or more broadly what happens in the kenosis of the Son of God, have been freely employed to shape our understanding of the Trinity. Trinitarian theology has often become the effort to find counterparts in God, primordial inter-Trinitarian doubles, doppelganger, for what we see or think we see happening in the saving economy of the Son's incarnation and the sending of the Holy Spirit. In the process of trying to find eternal counterparts for temporal and economic actions and events, the Trinity, far from shaping what we say about all other doctrines, has become the most plastic of all, the one most readily shaped by what we believe about other matters. The result, as my discussion of Balthasar was meant briefly to suggest, has been widespread confusion and incoherence, conceptual confusion and incoherence in Trinitarian theology, and an accompanying profusion of ideas which are hard to square with the church's creedal faith in the Trinity, though their advocates have almost never intended that result. If our understanding of other doctrines like the Son's kenosis has unhappy repercussions in our understanding of the Trinity, This ought at least to suggest to us that we reconsider our understanding of these other doctrines, all the more if we are committed to the primacy of the Trinity in shaping our view of all other matters of Christian teaching. But the more immediate lesson, I think, is that our understanding of the Trinity cannot rightly shape the way we think about the rest of Christian teaching as medievals and moderns agree that it should, unless we have a sound understanding of the Trinity to begin with. And this suggests that a sound understanding of the Trinity cannot, as a quite basic principle, simply replicate or double, reproduce at the level of eternity what we already believe about kenosis, the cross, or any other event of salvation history. What we need, in other words, is an account of the three divine persons, of their distinctions from each other, what makes them distinct from each other, and of their unity as the one God, how three who are really distinct from each other are nonetheless each identical with the one God, what we need is an account of that which which does not simply reproduce what we believe about the history of salvation. Only this sort of account has sufficient independence, sufficient priority actually to shape what we think about these other matters. We need to put the point in St. Thomas's terms, a rigorous theology of processions, relations, and persons in God, clearly distinguished from a theology of the redemptive missions of the Son and the Spirit. St. Thomas makes a basic distinction between procession, which is the eternal coming forth of the Son and the Holy Spirit from the Father, and mission, which is the temporal action of the triune God by which the Son becomes incarnate and the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. Now, mission and procession are linked in a very fundamental way for Aquinas, which we can talk about in the discussion if you like, but they're not the same. Now, what we need in order to understand the missions, the saving actions of the Trinity, is precisely a prior account of the personal distinctions in God. We need, in other words, a bold speculative theology of the Trinity, which is precisely not a bold speculative theology of kenosis or the cross. Despite all the Trinitarian writing of recent generations, there has been remarkably little of this. But it is the needed medieval answer to a modern question, which is how the doctrine of the Trinity can truly shape what we believe and think about God and all God's works. Thanks.